So we've been following the lectionary for our scripture readings this year, and upon first glance, it seems rather strange that John 14 uh, would be part of that grouping. Uh, why would we have a text that's clearly pre-crucifixion, pre-resurrection? Why would that show up in the lectionary readings for Easter, in the season of resurrection? Why would that be the case? And we could also say the same about next week, which will be the second part of this same chapter. Uh, but we could also say the same about last week, uh, in looking at the text uh, that Haley uh, dealt with then. But locating Jesus' words here in the Eastern season makes a lot of sense in this way. Here in John 14, Jesus is talking about what's next. He's laying it out for his disciples here. He's showing them the coming attractions, as it were, and how Jesus' followers are to live in a world seemingly sans Jesus. And so what does it look like to live in that place, to live into that world? And we'll see that today, uh, but again, we'll see that next week in the second part of chapter 14. For now, what is presented is part of what's popularly referred to as the farewell discourse. And depending on who you read in John's gospel, it either starts in chapter 13 or chapter 14 and runs through chapter 17. And it's given to an audience that's living in the midst of transition. And though that may have been heard, that transition and various allusions that Jesus made in outright statements, we see this in chapter 12, Jesus speaks about his own death. Uh, so leading up to this text, we see in chapter 13, of course, the foot washing. And so he's washing his disciples' feet and following uh, very specific patterns there. He speaks of betrayals that are coming. So they have all kinds of data points that are being presented to them. But they struggle to put it all together. They have trouble understanding what's coming. In short, they're very much like you and me. We don't know what the future holds. And even as Jesus presents it to them... I borrow from the words from Eminem at this point. Not the chocolate candy. All right. Jesus says to him, the mood all changed. He's about to be chewed up and spit out and booed off stage. That's what's about to happen. That's the Eminem free translation of the passion narratives in the Gospels. Of course, the same question that's asked in chapter 12 Verse 34, and in case you forget that verse, that one's an easy one, 1, 2, 3, 4. So chapter 12, verse 34, where the crowd asks, We have heard from the law that the Messiah remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? That's what the crowd was asking, and the disciples here are probably asking that same type of question. Again, confusion abounds here. So with all the swirling confusion and the burden of a coming cross, what is Jesus' message to this lot? What is his message to this bunch that doesn't know the future or certainly is confused by it, a bunch that is facing transition, or said even to us today? What is Jesus' message to us in our own age of uncertainty? What does Jesus wish to say to you and me that offers any level, any kind of assurance when we face our own troubles? that await us, or even the trouble of not knowing. Well, Jesus says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your hearts be troubled. Now you might say on the face of it, Jimmy, that's about as effective as a Hallmark card that's unsigned. <laughs> right? It's easy to say that, but it's not easy to live that. And so Jesus says to them, 
let not your hearts be troubled, but then he follows that up with some other key pieces. In fact, on this leg of the journey, don't stop believing. You see what I did with that sentence? Does anybody see? I know we brought that up a few weeks ago, and we just, it just keeps going, all right? This, all right, all right, you're with that? Okay. Keep believing in God. That's what he says. Keep believing in Jesus. Things are about to get really difficult. The future is going to look real uncertain. The path forward is about to get dangerous and rough. Hang on and hold to. And he says the reason for this are three things. Like all great sermons with three points. There's three things Jesus gives here. The first one is this. Jesus prepares a place. Jesus prepares a place. That by itself is rather comforting. Particularly if one doesn't quite feel at home. Or you possess that kind of wandering spirit. And because of the comfort afforded from the outset, as we already said, do not let your hearts be troubled. And Jesus says many dwelling places in the Father's house. And that Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. This text often finds its home at memorial services and funerals. The popular takeaway, of course, here is that this is all pointing to some distant future. When we all get to heaven, as the song sings, after we have died, as sadly as that is. The popular songbook, of course, has reinforced this notion. One particular example comes from Bill and Gloria Gaither. Do you know the Gaithers? Has anyone ever been to one of those concerts? I have. It's incredible. It's incredible how many people left by ambulance. <laughs> true story. True story. But Bill and Gloria Gaither's mansion just over the hilltop is one such example. I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, as the song goes, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransom will shine, I want a gold one that's silver-lined. Why would you want a silver-lined house? <laughs> I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we will never more wander but walk the streets that are purest gold. Of course, while living back east, I had the opportunity to see and even tour some mansions. And not to be outdone, I have also visited Hearst Castle in San Simeon, California. And these large stately buildings, these large stately buildings are often, they often fill the imagination for what some believe Jesus has in mind here. That we have a mansion waiting for us over in glory. Of course, it might help to remember that the King James Version from which we get the word mansions for this text was simply borrowing from the Latin at this point. Of course, that Latin means dwelling places. That's a different picture. A dwelling place is different than a large, large building. The Latin was speaking to an abode, a place where we might abide, not specifically the largest quarters one could imagine. So if Jesus isn't speaking of big buildings here, what on earth is Jesus talking about? Well, consider John chapter 6 and what he says there to his disciples. Those who eat my flesh and drink my blood abide in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever eats me will live because of me. That requires some context. Like, what did you just say? This idea of abiding, of course, is going to be picked up in chapter 14. Here in this chapter, of course, and then extensively in chapter 15. It's there that uh, Jesus' followers hear that they will abide in Jesus. That Jesus' word and Jesus' love and the Father's love will abide in them. And that the Spirit will abide in them. 
And so going to the cross, Jesus is going to prepare for them this abode, this ability to abide with the Father and the Son, to have Christ's own word, God's word in them, where we might enjoy that communion with God and have life to the full. This is relationship language, and not just any kind of relationship. Not the relationship you have with your dog, not the weird relationship you have with that one friend that you sometimes call, but this is a deep communion, a deep connection that cannot be separated. It cannot be parsed or divided, that God holds you in that care, in that grip that only God can provide. And of course, that language of relationship is seen in John chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Simon Peter, of course, gives voice in chapter 13 of not knowing where Jesus is going. We hear that in verse 36 of that chapter. And Jesus assures him that Jesus' own interest and service is so that we don't have to wonder where Jesus is. For God will abide with us. So that's the first assurance. We got two more to go. Second assurance. Jesus is the way. One confusion invites another. That's the name of my autobiography. <laughs> but now Thomas joins. He joins those voices, joins Peter as one who doesn't understand as he's asking, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Now Jesus' answer to that question has been popularly lifted for use in various evangelism and apologetics training tools. It's designed to somehow espouse the exclusivity of Jesus and the Christian message. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's verse 6. And as the argument goes, name the other religion. Name the other philosophical argument or system. Even key spiritual or religious figures. And none of these can do what Jesus does. Amen. Don't need to read verse 7. We're done there. And that's how it gets proposed and put out there. And though there is certainly something to that, the question comes here, is that what Jesus means to say at this point? Is that the question he's answering here that's being asked? Does that answer the question that's at the heart of the fear and the trouble that these disciples are facing? Would that statement assure you if you had no idea what's coming next? Well, a number of years ago, Brian McLaren published a reading online uh, of John 14.6. It was a section from a book uh, that ended up not being in the book, and so he published it online uh, through, at the time, what was called the Emergent Village website. Uh, it's still available. You can look this up, a reading of John 14.6 by Brian McLaren. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, document, and it raises some important questions, what I think are good questions, in looking at the widespread and popular handling of this text. And it sought to return focus to the context. What's the context of this verse? I remember sharing that particular reading with a group of students as part of a larger conversation we were having about taking care in reading the scripture, make sure that we pay close attention to the context. And for my troubles, I got a good ear chewing in a pizza restaurant uh, 
about a few weeks after providing that. So if that doesn't invite you to read this document, I don't know what does. But to this day, I'm not entirely convinced that Jesus is primarily looking here to assure his followers with merely a message of exclusivity. That somehow they are to draw their assurance from Jesus' own insistence that he is a better option than what other religious traditions can or cannot provide, as is how this verse is oftentimes promoted. So if not that, then what is Jesus saying? What would I propose Jesus is saying here? Of course, I think he's driving home what we hear throughout John's gospel, I think is what's happening here. What is the way to the Father? That's the question Thomas is essentially asking here. And Jesus says, I am. Now, it's not just any ordinary I am. It's one of the seven I am statements that shows up in John, in which identifies Jesus in a different league. Here, Jesus is pointed to as an I am, the I am, the one of Exodus fame, when God reveals God's self to God's people, to Moses in particular, and uses that name, which will later fill the pages of Scripture as the one who is speaking, the true God, the creator of all the universe and of all things. And Jesus is in that league. He's in a relational position with the Father, then, that is unique. It's a unique position here. The path you are looking for is Jesus. Jesus is the way. And this way is reliable, as we'll add to this, proclaiming and embodying the truth of God to the world, which is the way Jesus functions and operates throughout John's gospel. And this way is also life. And that word plays important from chapter 1 all the way through the end of John's gospel. The creator of life. In him is life. He comes to bring life. Jesus' point here isn't to assure his followers with what other religious traditions aren't, but rather keep before them who he is. In a sense, he's saying to them, this way. How do you get to the Father? This way. This is the way you do it. Go this way. And you'll be glad you did. Because no one comes to the Father except through me. Not as some kind of offensive lineman, big hulking burly fella or person, who's ready to smack you when you try to get to the quarterback, but rather, as Colin Cruz observes in his commentary, no one else can bring people to God, for no one else has seen God or made him known. No one else speaks and embodies the truth about God as he does. No one else shares the very life of God, and no one else has dealt with the problem of human sin so as to bring people back to a holy God. This means that no one can claim to know God while rejecting Jesus, his son. And so when Thomas goes Peter Frampton and says, I want you to show me the way. <laughs> I'm sorry, we had to have another song reference, right? Is that okay? No? Tough crowd this morning. Ah. A lot of people are like, I want my, I, I'm out of here. I'm going to get my free pen and I'm getting out of here. That's right. We got a thumbs up in the back. Great. Jesus assures them that I am the way. Precisely because if you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him, as we hear in verse 7. The coming trauma that would befall this fledgling community would most assuredly leave them questioning if they were headed in the right direction. Or we might say the right way. Amidst that confusion, Jesus says, follow me. 
And that sounds like familiar language, doesn't it? That's the type of thing we hear Jesus call out to people in that day and our own day as well. And this idea of imitating Jesus wasn't lost on early Jesus followers as they follow that way. We see that in our lectionary readings this morning, particularly the Acts reading. If you read Acts 7, 55 through 60, the death of Stephen, an early Christian martyr, is recounted. And in reading, we take note of the close parallels between Jesus' words at his stoning and Jesus' own crucifixion. As imitators of Christ's suffering, this shouldn't surprise us. Suffering doesn't surprise us. A future of uncertainty shouldn't surprise us because the cross does not afford us such naivete. So that's two. What's the third assurance that we have? Doing Jesus stuff. That's how I titled the third one. Jesus, doing Jesus stuff. The airways have made popular a prosperity message that from time to time draws on a passage like verse 14. We hear that in those types of sermons. And of course, that suggests a formula-activated name-it-claim-it scheme. If, you, if in my name you ask me for anything, I will do it, is what Jesus says in that text. This, of course, eventually breaks down as no one can, or someone can name all sorts of things that never materialize, right? I can go Ric Flair there for a moment and say, limousine drive an airplane flying son of a gun. But I'm still not limousine drive an airplane flying, and I'm not a son of a gun. And so that certainly can break down rather quickly. There's very few Ric Flair fans I see out here this morning. <laughs> All right? I see that. And a couple are leaving right now, as I say, Ric Flair. <laughs> so how does that serve as a, as a kind of assurance? Where do we find here what Jesus is getting at? Of course, we know that that name it, claim it, it sounds a lot like personal mansions at this point. The interpretation misses, though, a key point that's raised later in, in the gospel. Chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, and then he goes on to say the familiar here, ask for whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Abide. There's that word again, and that's significant. The assurance here comes to a community that finds its abode with the Father, a community of persons abiding with Jesus whose word and love abides in them. And so this same community continues in the ministry of Jesus. What we might call kingdom work here. What Jesus is up to in this time of separation is all leading to this coming possibility. It's by design. Jesus' followers now become laborers in the kingdom. And our labor is not in vain. And we see that harvest and it serves as an assurance of preparation that's happened. So let not your heart be troubled, we might say, as you see manifesting in your midst the work of the kingdom and that harvest that follows. So a place with Jesus, a place with the Father to abide, a reliable path to follow this way, and the power of God made manifest in the message and work of the kingdom. Assurances for the earliest church headed into the realities of a new chapter. Well, what about our, new, our own reality, our own chapter that we live in today? What happens as we face an uncertain future of our own? Well, there's certainly a lot of different explanations, and there's certainly a lot of different answers that will speak into this void for us. In the next few weeks, there will be graduation ceremonies in which speakers will be invited, and they'll talk of the triumph of the human will. They'll talk about carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Talk about making your own path as you head forward 
and different lessons of how they've succeeded and maybe a little bit of humility here and there thrown in. But they'll talk about how to take those steps forward. But what would Jesus say? We all know that life is uncertain. We know the future is uncertain. This past week I said I was on study leave. And I was boarding a subway in New York City. I was headed to Grand Central Terminal. And as I was on that subway car, it was running express, which means it runs from the station I board all the way to Grand Central, past every station in between. It's going to be about a 10 or 12 minute ride total. I didn't know what the future would hold, and I certainly didn't know a man would come on the car waving a gun around as the doors shut and the car went into motion. And people did the predictable thing. They scattered to each side of the car as he came walking down the middle of the car, right directly towards me because I was standing next to the person who was his target, or who I presumed was his target. And he was yelling all kinds of profanities and yelling all kinds of hate in the same time yelling, keep cool, man. Everybody keep cool. It's hard to keep cool. <laughs> I'll just say that. You may not have been a similar experience. It's hard to keep cool in that moment. Well, I went and sat down on the bench that was now clear, thinking, I don't know where I'm going to go. This thing's just still running. And he sat down right across from me, continuing to yell profanities, continuing to tell us to keep cool as he reached in and out of his pocket to show the gun. When the train came to a stop, the door opened, I left, rather quickly once I got through the door. But all the while on that ride, there was two things that I was imagining throughout that entire ride. One was a picture of my family that I saw playing over and over my head. And I had a weird philosophical moment where I thought, this might be the last time I see them, and it will only be in my imagination. And that was scary. The other thing was a repeated prayer. Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Over and over and over again. I didn't yell the four spiritual laws to him. I didn't say like there's physical laws that govern the universe or spiritual laws that govern your life. Do you know that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? I didn't do any of that stuff. All right, none of that happened. But instead, praying over and over, God have mercy on me. And God had mercy on me and that entire car because no shots were fired. This past week, I heard the story of a military chaplain who was approached by a young soldier who was being sent out on an assignment in a war zone. The setting was Vietnam, and this young soldier was afraid to go out. He knew the statistics as he went out. It didn't look good for him to go out on patrol, and he was afraid. And so he's looking for some sort of exemption, some sort of thing to get him out of this patrol, not to have to go. And the chaplain looked at him and said, yeah, if I, if I gave that to everybody who was afraid, nobody would go. Nobody would go out. But the chaplain said this, I can't keep you from going, but I can go with you. And so he did. The chaplain went with the young soldier out on patrol. And they went and they came back. And I wonder if that's where we see Jesus here in this text for us. To hear that the very presence of God is promised to us here in John 14. And we're certainly going to hear that in the second part of the chapter. But here Jesus is going to provide that sense of abiding with the Father and the Son. To have the very presence of Christ that can meet us 
on the battlefield, that meets us in the subway car, that meets us here in the pew or wherever our lives may take us in the midst of an uncertain and oftentimes dangerous future, that the very presence of God is there with us. Maybe you hear a diagnosis that takes you to a scary and dark place. The very presence of Christ can be with us, that God's presence is there because of Jesus Christ and it's promised to us. And there's some kind of sense of relief that comes to us in that moment. Jesus doesn't promise us a life free of trouble, but he does promise to go with us, to abide with us. And Jesus with us means it isn't over, that there is hope, that there is a future, and that there's still work to be done together, joined as a body of Christ with Christ. May we hold that truth in our lives this day and every day of our lives and forevermore. Amen. Friends, let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your great love for us. A love that's heard so clearly here in this text. A love of one who prepares a place, has prepared that place for us, that we might be joined in communion with you with one who provides the reliable path forward and shows us the way that we are to follow. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to follow the way of Christ. And to the one who provides for us a mission field to serve in as laborers in the kingdom, we pray, Lord, that you'd continue to strengthen us in heart and mind, that we might live out that life of compassion and tenderness, of love and forgiveness that we may be witnesses of resurrection to this community, to one another, and to all the world. We love you, Lord, and we trust you, and we pray that your spirit would continue to be present to us just as you abide with us always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.